0: to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odess Steps Magazine. As the saying goes, the best laid schemes of mice and men, dot, dot, dot. We had some really cool plans lined up for episode 100. Uh, first, our scheduled guests that we had planned for months and months and months decided to ghost me. Uh, we had some other great plans that were going to be part of the Family Affair podcast culminating... For a big anniversary that is coming up this week, we had a bunch of guests lined up, and then the real world got in the way. You'll hear more about that in the second part of the show. We do want to say that we have Carl Stern back on the show to talk about that very same anniversary that I just mentioned. That is Robert Fuller turning on Bob Armstrong in the cage in Birmingham in August of 1985, solidifying his first major heel turn in the area and forming the stud stable that we would all know and love for years and years to come, even after Ron retired and moved on to hockey. We're going to talk to Carl about that. He watched that live growing up in Alabama, so we're going to talk about the genesis of that, the angle itself, the aftermath some more stuff about southeastern and continental including why it is unloved in certain parts of the wrestling community and loved in others uh like i said we're also going to briefly touch on after that about some of the recent deaths in pro wrestling and how that affected the podcast and some of the upcoming podcast future thanks for listening we hope you enjoy the show (music) Welcome back to the Winter Palace. We're here for another episode of the Family Affairs Show to talk about Continental Wrestling, arguably the most important show in Continental history. Um, I guess well, we'll let uh, our first guest be the the judge of that. Uh, to pe- to pull the curtain back a little, um, we're having to record uh, guests separately that we had planned to. Do together, so I don't necessarily know how many people will actually be guests on this episode. I have some, f- uh, some fans in the fire trying to get people booked, and it remains to be seen who will or will not be on, but we should have at least a couple people. And the first person uh, that's going to talk about it is somebody who I assume was watching this TV uh, as it happened in 1985, may very well have been in the building. We'll ask him uh, in just a second. Welcome back to the show the Dragon King himself, Carl Stern. How's it going, Carl? Hey, it's going great,
1: Mark. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, uh, it's too bad we're getting get everybody lined up at the same time. But uh, I know scheduling is nightmares when you're, you're doing uh, podcasts. But yes, I, I'm very happy to be on this show because it was a very important time for Continental Wrestling. I wasn't at uh, this particular show. I did watch it at the time it happened. I was... Uh, Basically, like everybody else who was a fan of Continental Wrestling at the time, I was uh, well aware this match was happening, looking forward to it, and absolutely stunned at uh, what did take place in this match. And, Mark, I think this, to me, looking back now, at the time, it was obviously important. It was not uh, you know, something that became relevant later on. It was obvious that this was a, an important moment in continental wrestling continental had only become continental you know just a a few short months before it changed from southeastern wrestling to uh, continental in june of 1985 and it was really a seismic shift as far as the whole feel of the program the whole atmosphere while the the personalities the wrestlers were still the same the whole feel and and everything about it was different uh it, it it To me, looking back, I was a huge fan of Continental Wrestling, went to many of their shows, uh, watched it every time it was on television. But looking back with hindsight now, I realized that I was a bigger fan of Southeastern Championship Wrestling, and and specifically the Ron Fuller's Dothan end of the promotion when it, it launched really statewide in Alabama in October of 1980. and from there until June of 1985, that, in hindsight, was what I remember the most fondly. It was it had the best angles. It had the most personality to it. It was very much akin to what they were doing on Memphis with their TV show. Continental got, had more of a big feel to it. It was more of a, a national-type feel. They were doing it from the Battle Auditorium in Birmingham, Alabama, so you had this big arena, And uh, it lacked the intimacy, I guess. And at the time, it was great. At the time, it's like, oh, this is growing. This is uh, now looks big league. But looking back, I realized I liked the Southeastern part much better. And even though this match that we're going to talk about here today took place a couple months after the changeover, to me, I feel like this was really the death of Southeastern wrestling right here and really the birth of Continental Wrestling even though the names had changed because this would be the end of Bob Armstrong in Alabama. Bob Armstrong would not ever again in the state of Alabama wrestle as Bob Armstrong. He would be the bullet from this point forward with the mask, even many years, even into the 2000s, when he would wrestle in the state of Alabama, especially up around Birmingham, he always wore the mask and was always the bullet. Well, that was a continental character. Cre- you know, created for Continental as Bob got older, and of course Ron did the same thing with the Tennessee Stud uh, mask, and it, it was different. You know, it was it was a real change, and I think now I realize that, that that not the first Continental TV show, but this match here was the true changeover to a different era.
0: Well, uh, like you said, Continental had always, st- for people who have been following the blog we're doing, or for people who haven't been reading the blog, we're doing a week by week review of the TV show. And unfortunately uh, we've now gotten to the point where we're starting to not have all of the TVs and not all complete episodes. Um, we just posted the, uh, the beginning of July uh, for July 13th. That's the first week we don't have any TV from Continental, you know, it had started like you said. It started in June, so we have the first four or five episodes, and then uh, we get a we have a for this from what's generally out there for tape traders. So you know, we don't know who may have what squirreled away. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe it'll show up on Ron's new channel. Who knows? But uh, you know, we have we have a week or two of partial shows, and then we had our first. Uh, show where we don't have anything and then we have another couple weeks of partial stuff luckily we have the episode that we're going to talk about today on uh in full so uh to set the scene and one of the things that goes to your point is when they changed the name and they moved and they you know they brought in gordon um so they did a bunch of cosmetic changes but they really picked up right where they left off the week before. It's the it's the same crew, uh, generally speaking. It's the same angles. You know, they're just – it's just – you know, the stuff that happened the last week of Southeastern is pretty much the same thing that happened the first week in Continental. You have the nightmares are feuding with uh, either the Riches or the Party Patrol, depending on, you know, who's there that week. You've got, you know – uh, the Armstrong one of the Armstrongs feuding with Bill Asher with the junior heavyweight title, and then you've got all the stuff in the main event with the stud stable and versus Austin Idol and a freshly turned uh Lord Humongous And you can hear uh him you can hear Jeff talk about this time on uh, a past episode of the show that we did not too long ago. And you know, so it it's and you know, Rod's crew is Jimmy Golden and the Flame, uh, who's Jody Hamilton and uh, Boomer H. Lynch and soon to be Mister Class Ken Timms, and so it's really not a different. Pro- it's a different promotion in name only. The one difference that for when Continental starts that will become important is Robert Fuller is gone at the time of the changeover. So Robert Fuller is not on the first couple episodes of Continental, and this will become important uh, very quickly, That and I did not realize this, I think, until Bo told me, that Robert Fuller had never been a heel in Southeastern.
1: That's right, yeah. Robert Fuller's interesting in that Robert Fuller had never been a regular character and Southeastern. Robert Fuller was periodically on the show. He was never on there for a string of more than, you know, a month at a time, seemingly. I mean, he may have had a run or two in there a little longer, but, no, from from October of 1980, which Gulf Coast and Southeastern Wrestling, the Southern Inn existed before that, but the entire state of the northern part of Alabama, including Birmingham and Battle Auditorium, They didn't get television until October 1980. That's the true start of the Southeastern Championship Wrestling that most people around here know because it went then all the way from the uh, Tennessee state line all the way to the Gulf Coast. You had Birmingham, their first show uh, under Ron Fuller was in October 1980. So really, people get confused and it is very confusing because they go on YouTube and they found out, uh, find those Southeastern temperature wrestling shows from back in the 1970s and go, well, these are from up in Knoxville and not realizing it's two totally different things. Gulf coast down on the, on the, uh, you know, Pensacola uh, mobile down that way. And that's two different things. Then they get down there and they see like, you know, the, the famous Hulk Hogan and Andre the giant arm wrestling and that's Southeastern they go, oh, this is Southeastern. Well, that's really Gulf Coast Wrestling Southeastern. The it, Even though Ron changed the name to Southeastern, it was still just Gulf Coast. It was still Gulf Coast Wrestling. It didn't change for everything until October 1980. So from October 1980 up until this point, no, Robert Fuller had not been a heel, and he had seldom even, even been on. Robert Fuller's only real role... Uh, on screen in southeastern was to periodically show up and talk about you know if ron fuller was a heel he would show up and talk about you know how sorry his brother was and he couldn't trust his brother and he would usually be some sort of foil for him and jimmy golden or or whoever was wrestling against ron fuller he'd show up and be a a thorn in their side so the entirety of the time he was there You had no reason not to trust uh, Robert Fuller, even though he was Ron's brother, because Robert had always, his character had always been, I'm the good Fuller brother. I'm not not a low-down, you know, heel bad guy like my brother is. So don't judge me
0: by my brother. So it, it was interesting. Which is funny, because sort of in modern eyes, and from my perspective, again, I was not seeing this at the time. In fact, um you'll hear me discuss this on someone else's podcast in the near future. Um, I had only started watching wrestling in earnest right around this time or a month or two earlier. Um, Cause I, you know, in rewatching some of the stuff from August of 85 for the aforementioned podcast, the, um, that like, this is, I remember seeing st- this stuff as it happened. So, you know, this is all new. So I did not see Robert Fuller wrestle, I think, other than maybe in, you know, in highlights. I don't think I ever saw Robert Fuller wrestle until I got to college and got Memphis on cable and saw the Stud Stable. Yeah. So th- so so that's the Robert Fuller that I know moving forward. So to me, Robert Fuller has always been that you know, and basically all the versions that Robert Fuller's characters that he's played over the years have basically been Robert Fuller, even if they even if he has a different name. But like, that's the guy I know. So it's it's always it's still funny to me now to listen to the stud cast mm-hmm. and, and hear all this talk about well, uh, to hear talk about Rob and Jimmy mm-hmm. as these sort of white meat baby faces, which, you know, I've. I did not see until, you know, what we have of that footage until years later. So I just associate Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden being the Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden we know from basically now until, you know, the end, you know, be it, you know, even if it's even he's Colonel Rob Parker and even if Jimmy Golden is Buckhouse Buck or whomever. You know, those are the versions th- that I know. So it's always, it's sort of like now when you go back and you see historical footage of guys in gimmicks before they before they were sort of famous in, you know, either in Crockett or for the WWF. You know, you see. I guess maybe the best the best example might be Jim Nelson and Boris Zukov you know, for somebody who had, who is an entirely different character in more ways than one. Or, you know, just people with, or, you know, seeing, I guess it may have been a shock to, you know, 80s WWF fans to, you know, go back and see Barry Darsaw as a Russian or you know, any number of guys who were repackaged by Vince. But that's sort of how I feel about Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. And, you know, and I talked to Ron about this when he was on the podcast, you know, I didn't know who Ron Fuller was until years later because he was done in the business from my point of view when I started watching and certainly was starting to get exposed to areas outside of where we live here. Even though we got five, four or five different promotions TV here, you know, Continental wasn't one of them and Memphis wasn't one of them. So I always just knew Ron Fuller as Robert's brother who owned a, who owned a hockey team. So, you know, it wasn't until years later that I even saw Ron, you know, and it's funny now that, you know, Ron's so omnipresent with everything when he was out of the business for so long.
1: Yeah, it's see, a little bit different perspective for mine just because of the time shift. Because when I started watching in the late 70s, and, you know, again, everything being territorialized, regionalized back then. I always, like, Ron Fuller was the only Fuller I knew. Like, I thought Robert Fuller was, like, this just part-time wrestler who, you know, maybe raised horses or something in his real life because I didn't see Georgia or Florida or any of that other stuff. Uh, He just periodically popped up in Southeastern, reminded people that, you know, he was the good Fuller brother, and all I saw was Ron. So, to me, it was like, you know, Ron was the most important one. Ron was the, the only one I knew. Ron, you know... Uh, it's when I was thinking back, too, just to, to, to kind of put finality on that point, when Southeastern started on television in October of 1980, Ron Fuller was a heel on that first show. I mean, he cuts a straight-up, in-your-face heel promo, makes no mistake about it, I'm a heel, I'm a heel, I'm a heel. And he's a heel for about two weeks. Robert Fuller shows up on TV and says... I'm coming in the area. I'm going to wrestle here. And Ron gets up, walks out and quits on TV. And you never see Ron again until several weeks, if not months later, and he just shows back up as a good guy. And so like Ron launching his own TV show is gone in like two or three weeks. No angle, no nothing. Robert Fuller just shows up and Ron's like, if this guy's going to be in the area, I'm not and leaves. So it's that would they always had this very kind of strange relationship. And so by the time we get to this, you know, 1985 tag team match, it's well established. I mean, you you look at this this result and you think, of course, everybody in the building had to know Robert Fuller was turning on Bob Armstrong. This is the dumbest booking I've ever seen. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case at all. There was no reason to believe, if you were to believe anything, it was that Ron was going to quit because Robert
0: showed up. That's, yeah. That's been yeah. This is not uh, why is Sting trusting Ric Flair or Aaron Anderson or you know however many you know the jo- you know the running joke is you know how many times Sting has been turned on by his partners when he should know better. Yeah. This is yeah. This is as as we'll get to sort of unexpected. And I guess uh, to set the scene, uh, like you said, Robert had had not been in Continental yet. Robert comes back. Perhaps the first tease is that Robert now has, you know, frosted blonde hair, which he had not had before. Back when, you know, these kind of tropes were not obvious to fans watching that, you know, when guys suddenly changed their look or started changing their gear, that may be a sign something's up. So uh, Robert comes back. Um, and this time also, uh, Bob had put Jimmy out for a couple weeks. Um by putting him in a sleeper and refusing to wake him up. You know, that again, talking about time out or traditions, you know, you certainly did not see baby faces, not waking guys up when they put the sleeper on somebody. So Jimmy's gone for a couple weeks and this leads to this match in August of 1985, where the main event uh, of the show that week is a cage match, a loser relief town match. It, and we had just had a loser leave town match. Oh uh, well, Continental did a lot, but we had, had a one, lot, yes. Yeah, we had one a few weeks ago where there was an eight-man tag, um, all the baby faces versus the stud stable, and Pork Chop Cash lost. Uh, so he was gone. Also, I think by this by this point, uh, Humongous had also lost a loser-leave town match. So he's gone now too. So the the crew is slowly starting to change. Um, he's not relevant to this, but only a few weeks before the show we're talking about, Adrian Street debuted on television and won the won the South Eastern title from Austin Idol. So you're starting to get this new group of people coming in. So we get to this cage match on TV. So it's Bob and Rob against Ron and Jimmy in the cage, Loser relief Town. The TV show comes on. trolling along there's suddenly there's an there's an interview segment with Ron and Jimmy. Ron says. Why isn't the match not going to be on television? We demand this match be on television. If this match isn't on television, we're not wrestling. And walks off. Now this is not as weird as it sounds because the way that continental television worked was they taped every week in the Batwell. You'd have your three, four TV matches. You know, the TV main event is usually, you know, like most TV in that area, maybe a competitive match between two mid-card guys, but you certainly did not regularly get main event matches on TV. Although, Continental was probably better at that than most other promotions for putting main events on free TV.
1: Yeah, they they really started it in earnest right
0: around this time. Right. Again, when they switched to Boutwell and trying to, again, because they're trying to be national, change the name, bring in Gordon Soley, tape in an auditorium instead of a TV studio to compete with Vince and Crockett, who had started doing uh, arena tapings around this time, too. So the TV, but there was usually a dark match main event, after the tv tapings Uh, that that eight man uh match that we talked about a couple weeks ago wasn't on tv usually it was you know some combination of the stud stable versus some combination of the baby faces and the armstrongs or it was um the nightmares against the riches or uh some other something like that so the a dark match not being on tv is not unusual usually The next week or the week after they would show the clips on tv to further the angle so he said ron and jimmy come out say we want this on tv we want to you know we want to televise bob or my brother having to leave leave town or whatever and if it's not on tv we're not wrestling and they storm off so there's oddly again in hindsight when you look at the tv show there's no babyface interview rebuttal At least on the film that's out there that we all can watch. So we get to the main event. Ron and Jimmy come in first. Uh, Bob and Bob and Rob come in. Bob is a house of fire, as Bob Armstrong is wont to do. Going after, you know, runs right in, starts beating up Ron, starts beating up Jimmy. Rob, however, is Taking his time and is very concerned with the referee making sure the cage door is locked. Uh, as Bob is running running uh, amuck, Rob and and has the referee has the referee facing towards the door, so the ref is not seeing what's going on in the ring, and they're very concerned about locking the door. Meanwhile, as this starts, Bob has managed to get has managed to small package Ron and Jimmy uh, after one after for for Phantom 3 counts on both of them uh, while the referee is being distracted unfortunately by Rob who presumably did not realize that Bob was pinning them so the match starts Bob is Bob starts Rob's on the apron Uh, Bob's running Malak Bob never really, in the beginning, tries to tag Rob, but Rob generally seems distracted. Or so eventually, you know, you start getting, you know, they get the heat for a while. Finally, Bob tags in Rob. And Carl, what happens? Uh,
1: Robert doesn't play around. There's not not any of this modern day. You know, he he fights Ron and Jimmy for thirty minutes, and then turns on his opponent nope he turns right around and beats up bob (laughs) and it's just you know with all this attention to detail and all that is you know you think wow that's compared to today's stuff that is really a lot of subtlety there you know robert making sure extra extra sure that cage door's locked and nobody can get in you know he's they're they're not going to pretend you know to fight brothers or anything else for any period of time it's it's very clear what happens but somehow in amongst all this attention to detail they forget the most important thing about the whole deal which I'm sure we'll talk about which is to me still to this day utterly baffling how this match (laughs) quote ends Now, if I remember correctly, it's been a little while since I've I've watched this match, isn't it Brad who first comes and tries to get in, or is it Steve? Because Steve had been teaming with Bob around the towns. In fact, he'd been wearing a mask as Mr. Alabama teaming with him in different towns. But wasn't it Brad, and wasn't Brad returning here on this one where he tries to get in, or am I misremembering that?
0: I believe Brad had come back... Had come back to TV a few weeks earlier, so I don't think like this. Brad does not show up out of the blue. I believe Brad is already there, but has only been there maybe like two, three weeks at the most. Like as of the TV, you know, as of the July thirteenth TV, I think that's where we are up to on the recaps as we record this. I don't believe Brad has actually appeared on TV yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, I'm looking back at the results and. At least in the like in Birmingham, he hasn't wrestled. I mean, he may have done an interview or something, but he had not wrestled up this. So I guess it seems like you're right. It's it wasn't that this was just oh my gosh, and here's Brad also debuting, but it was like still very very fresh from being there. I think
0: I'm watching this off screen. Um, it I think it's Steve. It's he, Yeah, it's Steve, because, yeah, Steve's wearing a dark-colored shirt, and I believe Brad is wearing a white shirt. So I think it's it's either Steve or Scott. It's not Brad.
1: Yeah, because Steve is teaming with Nick Patrick right now as a tag team. And uh, so, anyway, the reason they're there is they're obviously trying to get into the cage to save their father, uh, a cage that we have seen Robert make
0: absolutely certain is locked. And it's funny, because this is not... Your giant, you know, this isn't the War Games cage. The cage is maybe six feet tall because when they stand on the apron, you know, they're almost as tall as the actual fence. So it's not like it will take them a great effort to get into the ring unencumbered. But, of course, like you said, well,
1: once well, we get so, to the. Yeah, Jimmy and, and Robert keep like smashing their fingers and stuff, trying to keep them off the cage. right? Yes, like they're, they're kind of watching the, the back.
0: Yeah, so what happens is, yeah, Steve and Scott are on, uh, as we're watching on the camera. Um, Steve and Scott are on the left side of the ring where Jimmy and Rob are holding them at bay, while Ron has Bob in the in the Fuller leg lock. And this is this has been minutes. So as they're preoccupied, Brad comes running in from the right side and basically just scales the cage in one leap. It comes in and then starts Oh actually I take it back. Robert is actually the one that had the fuller leg lock on Bob.
1: Yeah, I couldn't remember who who if it was Robert or Ron. No, I played. I mean
0: logic yeah, logically you would think well it's it's think both make sense. It's like it makes sense that Ron would be it because it's Ron versus Bob, but Rob was also the one that's just turned.
1: Right, but it also that's that plays into the biggest anomaly about this match which makes still to this day, no sense. It had no finish. It was supposed to be a, you know, lose or leave town, basically can't wrestle here ever again. And it's, it's the impetus for Bob disappearing and coming back under a mask as the bullet and basically doing the dusty roads, midnight rider deal where if they ever unmask him, he's got to leave because he's here illegally. The problem is he never lost the match. He never lost. This thing went to a no contest. Robert was his partner. He couldn't make him give up. Uh, Ryan is not the one that's, that, that did it. He didn't. This match has no finish to it. So even though forever, and I never even realized it till years later, we all were just like, oh, gosh, you know, if the bullets ever unmasked, he's got to leave town because he's supposed to have left and he didn't. He just came back under a mask. Well, he didn't. He didn't lose anything. Uh, that team didn't lose. There was no winner or loser. And I've always, and maybe, you know, if you have opportunity to, to interview Ron again or whatever, and, and if his own podcast ever gets to that, I would love to know what the, this reeks of Ron of Robert Fuller's booking, actually. I, I I don't think Ron would have missed that detail. Robert, perhaps. But... I think they chose emphasizing Robert turning heel and making sure everybody knew that he's the one that hurt Bob. So he's there's no coming back from that. You know, it saysn't just like he turned on him. He actually hurt him badly and injured him. So everybody knows from henceforth Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden are the top bad guys in this company. I think they chose to go with that rather than Oh, the little detail of, well, you know, he really didn't lose the match. And I don't know, to me, that would have been something I would have played up on in the future, but they never did. They never brought it up. They just always acted like Bob lost that match and, and uh, therefore was was barred from ever wrestling in Continental again.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have the, it's funny too, because you do have the history where, you know, Bob is the, when Bob's famous heel turn happened in 1982. You know, Bob is the one that injured Ron and put him out for months or whatever, then, you know, led to him, you know, his oh, eventual. He yeah, his comeback, you know, months, months later. But then, but Ron had already gotten revenge for that anyway. So it's not like, you know, it's almost like if Ron hadn't, like, if they had turned baby, like, if Ron had turned heel before, but not direct, you know, like, if that hadn't been a receipt. This, prob- this could have been the receipt, you know, two years oh, later. Yes. And and the way, you know, the Fuller's book, you know, a lot like Memphis, you need a long memory for some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, for you know, it's it would not be uncommon for somebody to come out and say, I've been, I, this has been stuck in my craw for two years, Bob Armstrong. Mm-hmm. You know, when you turned on me in that match with Ric Flair and put me out and blah, 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 blah. He's like, now, you know, I finally got my event. You know, that wouldn't be uncommon. You know, like I said, it's the same thing. You could see, like, I mean, Lawler and Dundee, you know, having 20 plus years, you know, during, during Memphis where they could refer to stuff that, you know. I'm sure if you could find tape in 1993 or 1994 when, you know, their reference Bill Dundee's wife losing her hair in a, in a match in 1977, you know, that wouldn't be uncommon in Memphis. And that's the same kind of thing that you had with with southeastern and continental. You need a long memory, especially as you've got smaller crews and a lot of times it's the same guys cycling in and out over the years. So you have that history to build on. That's one of the great things about um, a lot of the southern promotions, you know, where you have these mainstays for five, ten years that you have stuff to build on. Whether it's you know flair and the Car- you know flair. Player in the Andersons, or you know, DiBiase in Mid South, or you know, the Freebirds. I mean, how many times you know did the Freebirds come back to Dallas after the initial run, and you know everybody just accepts it. You know, it's like this is the next chapter in our war. It's the same with the Fullers and the Armstrongs. Yeah, exactly.
1: And it had been established a few times. Uh, Memphis was the best to do this. Like they would put a a time limit on loser leave town matches like, you know, it would be for 90 days or six months or something like that instead of some open ended, never can come back kind of deal. And uh, continental Southeastern never really did that, even though there was more than a few people who came back after loser leave town matches. But, you know, even though obvious things aside, this, set the tone for what Continental Wrestling would be. Bob Armstrong would come back under a mask of the bullet. We've all heard the stories, uh, you know, often repeated, that, oh, it's because, you know, Bob Armstrong was, um, you know, unhappy with his appearance after the plastic surgery on his face and everything, or he was getting older to hide his age. And perhaps that some of that plays into it. I don't really think anything beyond just, it was a way for Bob to freshen up who he was and to yes, maybe last a little longer, you know, than, than looking so old on TV to put the mask on, which is fine. Whatever his reasons were, they, they certainly were because the bullet became a, a, a giant star in, you know, continental wrestling. And certainly, uh, I, I guess it added great longevity to his, to his run there. Bob was well up in his forties at this point in time. Uh, Robert, I think got the most out of this uh, because he ends up with Jimmy Golden, you know, basically for the next roughly eight or nine years, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden end up in multiple territories as, as a tag team, Memphis and Dallas and all over the place. And ultimately end up WCW in different roles. But Robert got the most out of this. I think Ron eventually Basically rides off into the sunset. He he is the heel manager for a while, but oh, and even does a babyface run as a Tennessee stud a little later on. But for the most part, he's waning on out of things. Jimmy Golden is really Jimmy had peaked before this point. Jimmy as a as babyface Jimmy Golden in Southeastern around 1983, 84 was really probably his peak. Uh and so Jimmy is pretty much content from here on out just to be the, the the sidekick, the cohort to Robert Fuller until, you know, it gets sort of a career revival as Bunkhouse Buck a little bit. But so it changed things. I mean, it, it, this definitely was a changing point and, and there's no need really, you know, criticizing booking decisions or whatever because from henceforth, it does freshen things up considerably and I think makes everything clicked better. It, it certainly made an impression on everybody, and it's not something that they dropped the next week or never referred to again. I mean, this literally did change everything as far as the story uh, of what Continental Wrestling was doing from this point on until it you know, was sold to David Woods.
0: Yeah, I guess really the only sort of blip in that is when they turn face a year or so later, to feud with Kevin Sullivan and the and the headhunters. When yeah, when Yeah,
1: that which is that was yeah, that, that they turned, yes, but that was a weird sort of deal where you had a baby face, a heel, and sort of in between what we would think of as tweeners later on. There was a reason why, you know, like Kevin Sullivan, and I wasn't a big fan of that whole Kevin Sullivan era, like a lot of people were. A lot of people were like, "Oh my gosh, this is where Continental got really good." I I started checking out on Continental about that point. I thought Kevin Sullivan was interesting there, but to me, Continental kind of jumped the shark at that point. Uh, I I did like how. Kevin Sullivan sort of surreptitiously came in and basically took over Ron Fuller's stable while he was quote, you know, overseas or whatever. He was disappeared from wrestling again. And I thought that was kind of clever and something that really we didn't see repeated anywhere else. And so it's kind of unique to continental wrestling. But by that time, the, the crowds had started dropping. The arena was getting darker. The TV production seemed not as, as good as it had been because they're darkening down the arenas and stuff. And, and they're bringing in a little less known talent because all the big name talent was either going to, to Crockett or WWF. So Kevin Sullivan was about as big a star as you weren't going to get right there. And you know it just started getting, we, we had seen the big stuff by then. By that time, you know WWF was hugely uh, popular. And on a, you know, as far as TV production, they were in a, a, a completely different order of magnitude from what Continental was doing. And so th- it started to, to slowly fade at that point. So I thought they did some clever stuff there and I thought that the turn was fine. And certainly they did, they did some things that were, were interesting after that point and everything. But to me, this wasn't the jump, the shark moment because this was good. It, it changed things in a lot of ways for the better. But looking back now, I realize that I liked all of it better before this happened than I did historically after it happened, even though that's an anomaly to most people. Most people, because they saw Continental after this point in time, Continental gets larger TV clearances. It's shown up in uh, Knoxville, and it's shown in different places. They get that, uh, what is that, uh uh, financial news network or whatever that station is on cable that picked them up for a while. So more people saw that stuff. So to them, that becomes their continental. Well, to me, I'd been, I'd predated that. I was, that was my home team way before that, before they got this fancy new quarterback and stuff. And I remember the the good old days of it. And Well, again, this was a—I mean, this was a—this was a monumental turning point for it. Whether you liked it better or not, you know, personal choice. But it was certainly important, highly important.
0: Well, the the Sullivan stuff is the first time I remember ever seeing any Continental because that stuff ended up on pro wrestling this week. Because I think by then Continental was on Pedicino's block in Atlanta. So, you know, more people were seeing it. And then, like, because I remember on Pro Wrestling this week is when I saw, and I did not realize that Sullivan had done this before, but that's when I saw the angle when the third headhunter showed up under, from underneath the ring, which I thought was, was brilliant. Didn't know, didn't realize he had done it before then, but I thought that was great. And then, you know, Doug Furnish ripping the door off the cage you know, a couple months later. Like, those are the two things that I remember from when I first started watching around this time then about Continental, because that was the first time I had ever seen it. And I knew who Kevin Sullivan was from reading the magazines. And, you know, we haven't mentioned this yet, but again, this is also the whole the Fullers didn't really work with the after mags. So, you know, you know, this did not get you know, big full-blown coverage in PWI or any of the other magazines. So it's almost like this great angle for the longest time was something people knew happened and talked about, kind of like Bob's heel turn. But, you know, since it wasn't in the magazines, it's like it didn't really become as famous as, you know, similar things in other territories.
1: Yeah, and I've always felt like that policy was was poorly thought out. And I've even, you know, even Bob, before his his death, he was uh, even asked about it, and he, too, voiced regrets about it. Like, well, but, you know, in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have, we should have been a little more, you know, open with with the wrestling magazines and stuff. And, you know, Ron was pretty much, has basically stuck to his, you know, belief of he didn't really want... Everybody else in the world doing it. it was that old school territorial. we we're, were protecting our territory, even though by the time we get to '85 and certainly a few years thereafter, the territories didn't exist anymore. They they just didn't know it yet, and so it was really an antiquated policy that was a, was a poor idea. And certainly by the time Kevin Sullivan's doing that, there was no reason why, you know, they they weren't getting the coverage in the magazines.
0: They, they certainly should have. You know, and that's one of the reasons especially at the time you know that people thought continental went under you know went through this quote-unquote renaissance when eddie gilbert and paul Heyman come in once david woods has bought it because certainly if anybody's going to be friendly to the newsletters and the magazines it's it's eddie gilbert and paul Heyman at that time so i mean they certainly did a lot of interesting stuff when during that run of Continental after the Fullers are gone. But, you know, a lot of it is because, you know, suddenly they were a lot more a lot more friendly. You know, it's you know, if you look at some of the stuff that uh you know Chris and Bix have talked about on their show, you know, that, you know, Gilbert and, and Heyman being friends with Dave and Steve Beverly and, you know, Heyman's connection with the magazines. It's like, it's no wonder, all, you know, people like Dave are saying, oh, look how much fresher and in- innovative Continental is now that, you know, it's a new broom and blah, blah, blah. And, but it's like, yeah, but you have to, it's like, yeah. you reach, you know, it's like, obviously... You know, you look at the text in hindsight. You know, it's like again, whether it's because they didn't cooperate or what, or because he didn't see it. But you know,
1: Dave yeah, it, was sh- kind of, it it's kind of refreshing to hear Chris and Bix actually call that what it was. Because so many people, the company line is exactly that. Oh, you know, look at this renaissance. I think you it's the word renaissance for Continental certainly that's exactly how it's been played and repeated over the years the reality is i hold your horses it it really wasn't it didn't really get very much better it was a very short period of time what it did get was more coverage because eddie gilbert and paul Heyman were in all the media Dave's putting it over because who had never paid any attention to it before. That's just a fact. He'd never paid a lick of attention to Southeastern continental before. It seemed like he was, it almost irked him to have to report on it. Obviously the after magazines had no coverage of it because Ron and Bob didn't want them to. And now all of a sudden they're getting this publicity. And so they're getting, you know, whether, whether consciously or unconsciously, they're getting uh, positive reviews because they're communicating with, with the media. And that, in my opinion, that whole poly Dangerously Eddie Gilbert era of Continental is vastly overrated. Um, and it's really, I mean, after they leave, it was, that was the catalyst for what eventually sank the ship, quite frankly, And it was never the same after that. Uh, David Woods didn't know where to go with it. Uh, So Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman basically took it, played around with it for a minute, and then left it in a worse condition than they found it. The road to Birmingham was an absolute disaster. I did on my free podcast feed uh, a saga of the road to Birmingham, if anybody wants to listen to that. Uh, on all your various podcast sources, iTunes, whatever. You can look up the uh, Dragon King Carl Ultimate History of Wrestling podcast and get that saga of special of The Road to Birmingham. You can hear, I do it, you know, week by week, every single bit of it. And what a disaster that turned into. So I was glad to hear that they, uh, Chris and Bix, were the first two to kind of call that as it really was. and And not just, you know, not just shine it up because that's the company line. It, it really wasn't. It was not a positive. It was not a net positive.
0: But well, I mean, I mean, you kind of look at. I mean, even today, you know, it's like, you know, like the one thing that I think a lot of people still hold on to Dave for reading the Observer is, is unfortunately the obituaries. You know, which, you know, does you don't have to worry about. You know, Dave's opinions on the current scene when you're reading the obituaries, but it's like, you know, his his sources and biases still come through Absolutely. in the obit- obituary. It's, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, Dave's obituary for Bob Armstrong. Okay, was...
1: let, let me stop you right there because I think I know what you're going to say and correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. With all. with, with, what's the word I'm looking for, with uh, full disclosure. I work for Wrestling Observer. I work for, I I get paid to put a show on there. I get paid to uh, put multiple podcasts on WrestlingObserver.com. That does not mean I'm beholden to the Church of Dave. Uh, We can, in fact, have differing opinions. And I thought his Bob Armstrong obituary was an absolute travesty. I thought I was extremely disappointed with it. He essentially ignored Bob's entire time with Southeastern and Continental. Basically, if you didn't know who Bob Armstrong was, Bob Armstrong went from Georgia to Smoky Mountain Wrestling and nothing in between, I guess, even though he part owned the company and did the bulk of his career work somewhere else. So yes, I feel like his bias has clearly come through in that, and perhaps you have a you got a different take on it, <laughs> and we're going to say something positive. But listen, I work for Observer, and I'll be the first to tell you, I was mad about that,
0: mad about it. No, that's that's what I was going to say, and like I said, I don't. I mean, you know, I've been an I've been an Observer subscriber for more of my life than I have not been an Observer subscriber. I mean, it's, it's over, it's, you know, 30 years now. So, I mean, and, you know, and, and I'm Hall of Fame voter, you know, finally after, you know, years of occasionally asking about it, finally getting the vote a few years ago, but you know, it's, yeah, it's like Bob, Bob's obituary was maybe two and a half, three pages. And and three quarters of that was about his feud with Roddy Piper in Georgia. Yeah, well, you know, and
1: and but in all fairness, I think Dave had a lot going on that week. I think that's he had a, a death of his family right then, and so I, I understand life. I, I guess kind of got in the way, but yeah, I mean, I really wish he would have held off on that till he was ready to do a full one. And and it's not like again it's not like he doesn't have somebody on staff there that lived through this whole thing and knows all these people. And he's got my phone number and he could have at any point in time asked, asked, you know, Hey, would you write this section for me? And I'll just reword. He he could have done that at any point in time, but yet he didn't. And again, you know, I think he had a lot of stuff going on. Well, i I don't take it personally or anything, but there was a run of things about mm, several, several things happened right in that period of time where, I thought, you know, here's a situation I would have been considered an expert on and would have been glad to have talked to him on the phone or corresponded with. And he just completely ignored the fact that I've been working there for like 12 years now. So, I, you know, I thought that was, yeah, that that was just the last, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back as far as like, come on now. I mean, seriously, you know, one phone call, I would have wrote the, the, the section for him and he could have reworded it and took credit for it for all i care but rather than just ignoring it ever happened so uh, bob deserved better and uh you know i i I wish i wish that would not have happened the way it did
0: well the the couple things i would say about that is one it's not like dave hasn't in the past either a said somebody important died this week it happened at the wrong time of the week we'll have more later in fact there, there are certain obituaries. I believe we are still waiting years later for him to actually uh, do that. Just because, you know, it, that week happened, and you know, time passed, and other things happened, and he just, he just never went back to. I can't remember. I know people will occasionally throw out the name, but that occasionally happens. And it's not, yeah, it's not like Dave has not done that stuff in the past with certain people. I mean, he's probably a friend of both of ours but you know a lot of the lucha bios over the year have been written by by steve i mean with Dave with dave attributing to him so it's not like he had you know it's not like matt farmer hasn't written stuff in the observer sure. that, the that uh, when,
1: yeah when colonel james H. McLaughlin was put into the uh, observer hall of fame it was basically matt farmer and i who wrote that who wrote that Uh, You know, with Dave rewording it into his own words and stuff, because that's what researchers and historians do. You know, we hash it all out and then somebody, you know, puts it together, chronicles it. And that's the way it works. And it's the way it should work. And it just uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason being, uh, that's not how it worked out with Bob. It's too bad because that's kind of going to be, you know, that's really the historical record of that, the most visible record of that. But you know, between what I do at when it was cool.com, between what you're doing here, Ron Fuller on his studcast, what Bo uh, James does with various people like between the sheets and wherever he pops up, I mean, there is finally this stuff is is getting the attention it deserves. And uh, I think finally, now, you know 30 years down the road, but finally, you know it's getting a, a spotlight put on it. And and I'm glad to see that. So uh, even though that may not have historically been the case, I think it is the the case now that people are looking at this and it's out there if people are interested because I certainly have no shortage of uh, podcasts about this very topic on my website as does uh, uh, Between the Sheets and Ron Fuller with the Studcast and even uh, Jim Cornette and uh, so many of you with the stuff you've done. So there's really no uh th- th- there's no lack of it out there now if people just want to uh to dig into it
0: well the just to to tie up the thing with with the observer is i did not realize um that i just assumed and i didn't realize this until like you know i finally got the hall of fame ballot and was like making you know sort of doing research on who i wanted to vote for and all that is i did not realize that roy welch was not already in the hall of fame mm-hmm. it, you uh, know yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: But it's no, like, you-
1: nor would Dave ever. Nor would Dave. Does Dave ever think that direction? And you, you can call it a bias or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I don't think he just conscious, or maybe he does. Maybe he sits around and consciously says. I just hate that Southern wrestling stuff. I, I don't think that's the case. I just don't think that's part of his experience. I mean, his experience is whatever happened at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles is more important. Or in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, that's more important. Or, you know, these people here that I, I know. But the, the Southeastern United States, besides Florida, because Mike Graham, of course, is so very important. Uh, everything else is, is not important. And he had like he made a statement one time, and I think it was based on something I was conversating with him about, was that, you know, Memphis wrestling was one of his favorite, you know, wrestling to watch. And I'm like, that goes contrary to basically everything you've said for many, many years, putting it down, calling I mean, he's parroting what other people have told him about the Memphis quote garbage wrestling and all that stuff. And he's parroted that. So either, you know, he he didn't himself formulate, formulate an opinion on it, or he went contrary to his own opinion, but nothing I've ever read from Dave in any way, shape, form, or fashion says, I was a giant fan of Memphis Pro Wrestling. It says just the opposite. It says like, oh, that was the wrestling everybody was embarrassed of. No, that's what your inside sources, the wrestlers you were buddies with, said about it because, you know, jerry jarrett shorted him on pay or something you know which a lot of people felt that way i'm sure many of the people who talked to dave hated jerry jarrett nick Goulis, and all those people because they were infamously difficult to work with infamously crooked on payoffs and everything else so sure i'm the, the information he's getting fed is going to be from a negative perspective but we as the fans didn't know any of that stuff. We were watching the television shows. We were watching the characters that were on there and fans of the personalities. And it was no nothing to do with that story. Whether you know Nick Gulas was shorting these wrestlers on their payoffs. So it's to me, it's tainted the, the the most significant chronicle of pro wrestling, pro wrestling history, which is the Observer, rightfully so. It does absolutely have a demonstrative bias on Southern wrestling, particularly anything involving a Fuller, a Welch, a Jarrett, um, Gouliss, anything like that. Ab- uh, and that's why, you know, and, and, and it, it's not going to matter to put him on the ballot. Nobody's going to vote for him because they've been told this for decades now. You know? So their opinion is what Dave's opinion is.
0: Yeah, I mean, Roy Welch and or Buddy Fuller, who both deserve to be in, it's like, yeah, they would have to sort of go in by, that would have to be following the historical oversight category. And, you know, it's now, you know, it's funny that, you know, most of what I knew about Roy Welch was, you know, that, you know, he ran Tennessee with Nick Goulas and was a tough guy. You know, I mean, like, But it's like we've now had four years of admittedly biased stories from Ron about their business and how successful. I mean, if if you took Buddy Fuller's name off his career and again, taking Ron at his word, it's like if you presented Buddy Fuller's resume about all the places he went and all the business he did, you'd think that guy should be in the Hall of Fame.
1: Well, again, I would argue that you put that name up against Don Owen and just compare numbers and you tell me one's in, one's not. Uh, you, you tell me based on houses drawn, the amount of, you know, the territorial size, the number of years involved, all that. And you tell me, I mean, just let the facts stand for themselves. But, uh, you know, it's it is what it is. You know, I, I, there's there's no. You know, two ways around I,
0: But when you when you but, mentioned the, the first the thing that you said that when about Memphis and Dave's sources that I remember the thing that the thing that, that immediately comes to mind is how badly Larry Matizak talked about Jerry Lawler in his book. Exactly.
1: Who was one of Dave's number one top in his ear, people. He hated. He hated the. Larry Medisic, and I. I, I liked Larry Medisic. I had Larry Midas on several of my shows. I liked him. I thought he was a smart, very likable guy. But here's a guy. He never. He never got the Rock and Roll Express. He hated him. He couldn't stand it. And. That flies in the face of historical pro wrestling. I mean, I'm sorry, he hated Jerry Lawler and all the the Memphis stuff, absolutely. And another you know worm that was always in Dave's ear was, of course, Eddie Gilbert, you know, and his father, Tommy, had worked and was, you know, I'm sure, told him many stories about poor payoffs and mistreatments, and Eddie Gilbert wanted nothing more in the world than to be Jerry Lawler. and so he I'm sure fed dave all that you know venting to him about you know i would i would be more if jerry wouldn't just hold me back or hold me down or i don't get a fair break or things like this and i think that that may have crept in there uh, to uh to color his opinion i don't know Uh, i don't know what it is other than just like many of us he likes what he likes and that's you know one of the big arguments nowadays about the whole AEW thing and all that is, you know, look at the end of the day, he likes what he likes and he's going to give favorable opinion and, and coverage to that. Just like, you know, is whether that's good journalism or not, I guess you can argue that one way or the other, but I cover the stuff I like and, and I don't cover the stuff I don't like, which is modern pro wrestling. And so I guess we're all, you know, guilty of that in some way or the the other, but uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's all I got to say about that as far as Gunt would say. So I, I'm trying my best to chronicle the history of pro wrestling as unbiased as I can with my ultimate history of pro wrestling project that's at whenitwascool.com. And so I would invite you know anybody that's uh, interested in that to check that out. These are, I'm, I'm not trying to, I've never considered myself really a historian. I'm more of a chronicler, uh, you know, going through newspapers, going through other historians work, doing the other researchers work, and trying to put it down in a in a fashion that we can all understand and we can all use, and that will, more importantly, I guess, preserve it, uh, preserve it for you know posterity. People, anybody, some that might be interested in this stuff thirty years from now, want to know, well, how did it get to this point? Well, here's how it got to that point, and so hopefully I can do that in a unbiased fashion but i've certainly got my favorites too and i guess we all all sort of do
0: well i always i always jokingly say now that i'm a non-practicing journalist because (laughs) while i was trained i'm not i don't work in the business but i'm also in a way a non-practicing historian because it's like you know i have a degree in history but it's like i don't it's not my day job but i mean you know certainly one of the things that i was taught you know which is common sense is you know everyone has bias you know the famous slogan history is written by the victors i mean in the in in the wrestling world the two the two i guess best examples of that are one the vincent man's version of history which very often is not really what happened and to a certain extent uh the observer's view of history which you know, is again, is one man's opinion. So, uh, you know, again, you just you take the information and you put it on a filter, and you say, you know, what's the spin? I say the same thing about documentaries. Documentaries are not the truth. Documentaries are made by <laughs> filmmakers with an agenda, whether yes, it's
1: an entertaining presentation. You're exactly right.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, whether it's you know agenda whether it's agenda based or an honest attempt to be accurate it's like a document you know if a documentary has an editor and a director then it's not the complete unvarnished truth it's their version of the truth which may be what really happened but it's their version of the truth and that applies to real history it applies to pop culture it applies to sports. And then it applies to wrestling, which is a combination of all three. Um, Carl, I want to thank you very much for doing the show today. We are going to maybe do some some other stuff, but I guess maybe we'll say that for another time or, or whenever. I, I know we, we have plans. that There's a certain uh, episode of your podcast, whenever you get around to it, that I will hopefully be on to talk about a certain, a certain thing in comic book history that, that I love and I love talking about. Um, Absolutely,
1: yeah, we've, uh, you know, I I always, I often say this whenever I'm fortunate enough to be invited on someone else's shows, uh, make no mistake, you know, I realize I'm the problem, the problem is scheduling me, I have a very difficult schedule with very weird stacked off days.
0: You're telling this this to me, Yeah, yeah, so
1: but but this goes for many other podcasts of which i've been invited on as guests you know many times the if if i'm not heard there the the problem is not them it's the problem's me it's not because i'm not asked it's because uh oh carl here is the worst person to try to schedule on planet earth although as i enter the the twilight days of my uh of my real world career hopefully you know there'll be more free time in, in the future down the road and uh and uh, we can talk about these things we really enjoy and love. But absolutely, there's some certainly some pop culture stuff, and that's what I do. That's the focus of whenitwascool.com com is retro pop culture, and uh, we definitely got to we definitely got to get together and 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 talk some of this stuff because I've been putting these projects on the back burner a little too long.
0: Yeah, but uh, before we go, like I said, uh, visit whenitwascool.com for all of your various shows and the ones you do and the, the ones. Some other folks do. I, I I'll, I'll throw this out. since This is what we were on talk. We were on do some comics talk, but uh, I I want to make sure to get it out that you really love the new issue of the first issue of the new version of Moon Knight that just came out, because it's a character I know you said you you've loved for a while. And there, and we talk about wrestling and people's gimmicks. If there's ever a character who's had a number of gimmick changes over the years. It's Moon Knight, but I know you raved about that first issue. So if you want to take like a second or two just to talk about it.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I have always liked that character because he uh, has got a, for one thing, it's got a very striking, very interesting look. Um, and it's, I think it's always been sort of misunderstood. Like, well, I think the first thing most people think about when they think about Moon Knight now is that, whoa, this guy's had about 10 million series. I don't even know where to start. Where to even pick up with it? And they're all inconsistent, and they've taken many different paths. And I've I've advocated for a long time. Look, okay, you, you've used Moon Knight to kind of go down this road with this multiple personality disorder stuff, and basically to explore your in your own weird kind of pop culture ways these different tropes about that, and it just don't work. It, it's it's forced, and it's not even accurate. Like. Um, He's been comp- called the poor man's Batman and all this, and none of that's really true. Moon Knight started off as as a henchman for hire, fighting like Werewolf by Night, fighting the werewolf. And so, some of his early series were more steeped in in a in a, in a dark detective sort of way, but there was a supernatural spin. He was he, he was battling you know the the scary things of the night like zombies and ba- vampires and things like that. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, a good take. Well, he become he got really into the superhero side of things in the the eighties and nineties. He had the the Mark Specter Moon Knight series, which was the longest running series he ever had. He was straight up superhero, you know, the the member of the Avengers and all that good stuff. And I guess that was fine enough for the time. But boy, in the the nineties and two thousands, he has been nothing more than a character for creators to play with about whatever they want to do with, you know, we got this superhero and he's crazy. So what do we, you know, what do we do with that? We, you know, we can tell off. And 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 the stories aren't even good. They're, they're not even good and engaging and that last run where, Oh my goodness it was just indecipherable. Some of the nonsense that went on. like that. I couldn't even read it. Couldn't even make sense of it. So now it looks like they have finally decided, look, let's go back to the basics with this character. You got it, and, and they even did something that good grief pro wrestling could absolutely take a lesson from in this issue. They actually sat down and just took a page to explain it in 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 narrative. They had a like a a I don't know if it was a psychologist or whatever sitting there, some sort of clerical role sitting there talking to uh Moon Knight, and he's basically saying, Look, I know all these things happen, and this is my relationship with Khonshu, and this is why those things are done, and this is what really happened, and contextualize all that. So it, you know, it gave credit. It didn't just ignore that all that stuff happened, but it firmly put him in a better place, I believe, and put him, you know, where he needs to be, which is, you know, fighting vampires and things of that nature. And if they stay the course with this, I think this book's got some potential it certainly it certainly at least can bring the character back to a little more palatable sort of mainstream digestible place to be and i know they got the moon Knight disney plus series coming up uh i guess next year or sometime and you know who knows maybe they're going to go a totally different route with that who knows but he's going to be on the radar and i think this was a good way to get him back there
0: yeah, if if you were to put a gun to my head, given that this number one is out now, I would say this is that they've probably been told that this is what because I think they're I think they've already began production maybe or at yeah, least yeah, it's, I think it's,
1: they've got everybody cast. I'm, I'm certain they've got everybody cast, and I guess they've at least done some of their preliminary, you know, like. Uh, location shoots and things like that
0: so knowing sort of the way things are now that disney wags marvel's tail that you know i mean you look at all this stuff that has slowly evolved over the years to match more of the movies to to the way characters have been in the past that probably someone on the disney side told somebody on the marvel side you know, this TV show is going to be X, Y, and Z. Like, yeah. if there's a Moon Knight book. It would probably make more sense for it to be like the TV show than to be. Um, although you although I liked it and you didn't to be the, the Moon Knight wearing the mask in the business suit. Right? You
1: know, oh, no, I did like that. Oh,
0: that. OK, I lock, oh, yeah. I oh like the one it. the one after that. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm a big fan of the of the the Jeff Lemire series. So, but you know, it, but you know, it, it would make sense that whatever they're doing with him now, especially in the number one, will probably not be too far distant from what they do on the show.
1: Yeah, this this I think is going to be a lot more palatable to a mainstream audience than whatever that last thing was. I mean, I don't even know how you do, explain. I could if you asked me to. To give you a synopsis of that last series i couldn't do it because i've no no clue i read the whole thing and i still don't really know what happened there but uh this is this is a lot more i think people i think you can sell idea uh, people idea of oh here's this cool looking hero who fights vampires and stuff okay uh, that's simple enough i can understand that
0: there you go that's carl's recommendation and for more of carl's recommendations check out stuff on when it was and all his various podcasts Carl, thanks again for doing the show. I'm sorry we did not, uh, the plans uh, we were laying did not come together. But, you know, as long as, as, as this podcast, if this pod- if the Continental podcast keeps going, we'll certainly have the chance probably to have a bunch of us all on together to talk about it. But until yes. then, until then, people, when people hear this, they'll know how many parts this show actually was and who was actually on it. So uh, this is either we'll see you next episode or we'll see you after the break. Uh, We'll find out later. Thanks again, Carl. And we will talk to everybody either next time or after the break. Welcome back. As you may have noticed in the conversation that I had with Carl, there was no mention of the deaths of Jody Hamilton or Burt Prentice or Bob Eaton. That's because we recorded his part of this episode earlier in the week, and we are going to stitch it together with some other interviews with people to complete this episode. Unfortunately, all of those tragic events this week have meant we haven't been able to do those other parts of the show. We appreciate those guys who are going to be on the show, and we hope to have them on a future episode. I do want to make sure to pass along our condolences to the friends and family of Jody and Bert and Bobby. Jody Hamilton was a Hall of Fame caliber wrestler and certainly talker as one of the Assassins and the Flame and Continental You've seen us mention him as the flame in the Continental Project a lot. Uh, He's going to be leaving Continental soon in our timeline, but he will be back. Uh, An all-time great talker. You only need to look at some of the clips on YouTube to know that. Burt Prentice, who you may not know, was a longtime promoter in the Midwest and South. You may remember him from Global Wrestling and Memphis and USWA. That's probably where most people will have seen him. Bobby Eaton, I don't need to say anything about. You only need to look at uh, the internet to see the outpouring of love and appreciation for his career. In the Meta Express, with many, many other tag team partners, including Coco Ware, I'm not the only person who has long said that Bobby's best tag team other than the Meta Express was with Coco Ware. I was able to confirm that at a convention a couple of years ago with both Jim Cornette and with Bobby himself. They both agreed that Coco was his best non-Midnight Express partner and arguably maybe even better than the Midnight Express. Your mileage may vary. There's plenty of clips of Bobby online for you to watch. Uh, You can't hardly find a bad one. So again, our sympathies to their friends and family. Um, We hope to have another episode possibly in the near future. I have to admit Uh, This episode has been nothing but trouble. The guest that we teased at the end of episode 99, uh, in all honesty, ghosted me for at least six weeks. That's one of the reasons this episode is so late. I certainly wasn't expecting that from somebody that I've known for over 30 years and I thought had a good relationship with. But yeah, I have some other uh, irons in the fire about upcoming guests that I've already talked to, hopefully that will happen. I can't guarantee when those episodes will be. I'm no longer making any guarantees about when an episode may or may not drop. I apologize to the few of you who actually look forward to these episodes, but um, it's becoming harder and harder for me to try and book guests, and I'm becoming more and more frustrated, so I'm not making any more promises about episodes. They'll happen when they happen. I apologize. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.